Hey Compact Nation podcast fans, this is Emily Shields and I have a special request for you. We are busy preparing for season three. Can you believe it? And we would like to know what you think. So if you could fill out our official podcast survey, we would really appreciate it. You can find the survey at compact.org slash pod survey. Complete it by the end of July, and we will use your comments to make our podcast even better. Tell us if you like the format. Tell us who you want to interview. Tell us which have been your favorite guests. Again, that's compact.org slash pod survey between now and the end of July. Thanks. and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact and Acting Director of Minnesota Campus Compact. Woohoo! I'm, <laughs> I'm J.R. Jameson, Executive Director of Just Indiana Campus Compact. Only, right. <laughs> and I'm Andrew Seligson, President of Campus Compact, and I'm often acting, but that's just a different story. <laughs> <laughs> but you're of Global Headquarters, right? President of Global Headquarters. Uh, inter- intergalactic Headquarters, Oh, that's right. Yes. Please. Mm-hmm. That's we right. have some standards around here. <laughs> So we haven't really been together since the national conference. Um, And my news is, I guess what I just said, Um, our esteemed colleague, Julie Plout in Minnesota, took a job at Brown University in the Square Center, which is very exciting for her, though she'll be greatly missed. So I'm on a temporary basis, um, helping to uh, steer the beautiful ship that is Minnesota Campus Compact. <laughs> so that's my news. Spending well, some time I, up north. I, I just want to jump in as a former Minnesota resident, now back in my native haunts of the East Coast, for our coastal listeners, Iowa and Minnesota are contiguous states in the Midwestern U.S., just in case that wasn't clear to people. This isn't some random, like, Texas (laughs) and New Jersey. You know what I mean? It's like these states are right next to each other. They are touching. I always think it's interesting that people on the coast can't seem to get a grasp on Midwest geography. It's not that complicated, Mm -mm. right? Well, okay, I think if you're a coastal person – and you just think about the states around you, you've got this one thing, which is the ocean. You don't have to worry about that. You just kind of go north, south along the coast and you learn the states. And then between the coasts, it can just seem like a sea of mm. borders and shapes. We're just mm. we're just flyover country, essentially, is what you're saying. <laughs> I'm saying that is true to some people. I'm also saying I lived very happily in Minnesota for 10 years and came there as a narrow Northeasterner that assumed all of the stupid things that you know narrow coastal people assume about the world and had all of my assumptions turned upside down and inside out and I'm now a great booster I'm like a secret agent for the Midwest among the coastal people nice. so I'm you know I just want you to know I'm in your corner so you occasionally just say like guys it's not terrible uh, <laughs> I, I don't. I've never. I've never said that because I think so much better of it than that. It, and of course, the it right when we talk about the Midwest, we're talking about a greatly diverse array of places. <laughs> this is another point that I think is kind of lost, even though you know 
some people think the Midwest is Cleveland. Some people think it's a cornfield in Iowa. Some people think it's a great lake. You know, there's not clarity about it, but, but whatever they think it is, they think it's all like that as opposed to being a very diverse landscape of diverse peoples and places and all that. But anyway, mm-hmm. now I'm just giving like a very boring lecture about the Midwest. I will to, say, to uh, Midwesterners. To two Midwesterners. So I, yeah, I think you know, actually we a, know. Like, that solidifies my status as a Northeasterner. The fact Wait, that I are you? Yeah, that. I feel like you're coast-splaining. I think I am oh, coast-splaining. Yeah. 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 Although I'm, I'm trying to own my coast-splaining privilege. Uh, <laughs> I, will, I, will come, I will come to Andrew's defense a little bit and people on the coast. When I think about New England, I really don't get those states right. Whenever I would do like a geography quiz where you had a list of states, I, Vermont, Connecticut, Rhode Island, they're all kind of the same state to me. So I will say in your defense as coast, uh, coastal people, I too sometimes would be like, I don't know what's a new England. I know the states are there, but I don't know which is which. I will say I have figured that out over time. So there is opportunity for growth for people on the coast to learn about the beautiful, fabulous Midwest. That That's a beautiful story that brings us all together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a testament to the Iowa educational system because you put a map in front of me and I bet you I could name all 50. <laughs> we should try that out. We should. <laughs> That, that, that makes for great uh, podcasting. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? something very yeah. visual. Uh, <laughs> exactly. it'd be Let's quite all a sit joy. quietly while Emily fills in a map. Mm-hmm. Exciting. Well, maybe good. we'll do that this summer, you guys. We can put it to the test um, when we're all together. <laughs> okay, so JR, you have been up to some podcast business. Do you want to fill us in on what you've been doing? Sure. So a couple of weeks back, I traveled up to Notre Dame, Indiana, which is just north of South Bend, Indiana at the University of Notre Dame. And the fifth Global Service Learning Conference was happening. Uh, I went up there and recorded the final plenary panel, which was a great panel about the future of global service learning. And then I did a one-on-one interview with Eric Hartman, who's at Haverford College, and he is one of the founders of the Global Service Learning Conference and Global globalservicelearning.org. So that episode will be coming out May 30th. So we want our listeners to watch out for that release. Uh, It will be in two parts because we did record the panel and then our one-on-one interview with Eric. That one-on-one interview will be a wraparound the panel. And so for your convenience, we have released it in two episodes that will be released on the same date, but you can download them at two different times or listen to it uh, all at once. Yeah, so we're looking forward to that kind of deep dive into global service learning from some of the people um, doing great work in that area. Um, Excited about that. Uh, Any other updates from across the Compact Nation we want to cover before we talk about this week's guest? Well, can I just um, say one thing about... Uh, because uh, JR mentioned the URL for the Global Service Learning folks, but actually what was globalsl.org is now hosted on the Campus Compact website. So if you want to find out about the great work that our friends at Global SL are doing, uh, it's compact.org slash global hyphen SL, global SL, but you can also just kind of navigate your way to it from compact.org. So we've been excited to have them bring uh, that content to our website so a lot of folks in our universe can find it. 
Perfect. Superb. So our episode today is continuing on the sort of health focus topic. So we had a previous episode related to that with um, Katie Clark from Augsburg University, and we're continuing the conversation um, about just how we can incorporate community engagement into um, health areas, how we can use community engagement to solve health challenges and things related to that. So, um, Jerry, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk a little bit more about who it is that you interviewed. Yeah, so I got the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Bob Atkins, who was once a school nurse in Camden. He went on to get his PhD. He's now an associate professor of childhood studies at Rutgers Camden, and he also serves as the director of the New Jersey Health Initiative for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Bob co-founded about 25 years ago uh, the Camden Star Program, which is a nonprofit youth development initiative that sought to improve the life chances of youth living in the Camden area. He also conducted research with nationally representative longitudinal survey data and qualitative data collected in Camden that explored the effects of urban poverty on child and adolescent health and development. Um, We had a great conversation about his work, about his work with STAR, why he founded that, how that program progressed, and how his research has helped inform his new role as a grant maker. So let's go to that interview now. Dr. Bob Atkins, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Oh, thank you, JR. So in most circles today, you're known for leading the New Jersey Health Initiatives of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and that work promotes and supports innovative approaches to address health challenges in New Jersey and nationally through things like white papers, grant making. But prior to this role, you've had a career of 25 years that has engaged youth to improve their health and the health of their communities. Can you tell me more about the Camden Star Program you co-founded in 95 and why you started that? Yeah, so let's get in the time machine. We'll go back, and I—I uh, I can't believe it's been 25 years. But I, my, um, my first job out of nursing school, um, I knew I did not want to be in a hospital. I mean, I was nursing was a second degree for me, um, but I went to nursing school at the University of Pennsylvania, right across the bridge in. Uh, Philadelphia, and I knew I didn't want to be in the hospital. I knew I wanted to work with youth, and that's not the typical pathway for most nurses. Usually, your first job is in the hospital, but I was, you know, a little bit of a stubborn rabble-rouser, and so I, I wanted my own path, and I grew up in Cherry Hill, which is a suburb um, only a couple of minutes uh, from Camden uh, geographically, but a well, very substantial distance in terms of socioeconomic opportunity. And I, uh, I decided I wanted to be a school nurse. So I went to the Board of Ed and I met with this really um, wonderful school health supervisor by the name of Marilyn Maloney. And I told her that I, I wanted to be a school nurse. And I just graduated and she said, well, you know, first of all, I, I've never hired somebody right out of nursing school. I've never hired a man. I've never hired anybody. You know, I was only 26 years old or 27. I never hired anybody. You're, but, but, but I like, I like your style and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hire you nice. and I'm going to, yeah, I know. And so she, uh, she said, I'm going to put you in a middle school. I think you'll be great there. Fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth grade um, is East Camden Middle School. And this was 1995, and 
um, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I was, uh, I was up for it and she, she gave me some great advice. She said, um, there's going to be a lot of things to do. You're going to, you're going to have a lot of obviously first aid and, and all the kind of screenings that school nurses do. But she, um, she gave me a great piece of advice. She said, um, you know, make sure that you have fun, uh, with, uh, the children that you're serving. And that was great advice. And it's something that sticks, has stuck by me. And I, I, I always appreciate her by taking a chance on me. Um, but I, I love that job. Um, it was something that I learned so much about, about, about the city of Camden, um, which I'd only known from, um, what I read in the newspaper or saw on the, um, five o'clock news. Uh, and I learned a lot about adolescents. And I learned a lot about um, what's happening in their lives. And, and these kids that I had the privilege of serving were a lot like the kids that I grew up with in Cherry Hill. Uh, they were ambitious and funny and smart and, and caring. And I got the opportunity to learn a lot about adolescent females. I mean, the adolescent females would come to my office. And this is, an, this is a school of like 700 kids. But they'd come to my office and they'd drag um, like six or seven chairs into my office and, and, and sit in a circle. And they would just talk and tell me about what's happening in their lives, and what's, you know, the cute, the cute teachers were and, mm-hmm. and everything that was going on. It was, and it was, you know, I learned a lot. And then uh, the, uh, the males that were in the school. Uh, who looked really tough out in the hallway or when I saw them outside the school, you know, with, they wore hoodies and, and they made really kind of uh, a scarce eye contact, you know, give me a nod and look real cool. Um, but when they would come into my office, they'd come in as, as just one, one by one. Right. Mm-hmm. And they would close the door and they'd take off their hoodie. They'd take it down and they would sit and they would just start talking and they would just start sharing. And I just had this real kind of um, realization that, how valuable and how privileged I was to kind of be there in that space for this kid who could just kind of let go, right? Didn't have to be tough. I mean, in the streets of Camden, I mean, they have to look tough. And, but he was able to just kind of, all these kids, all these boys, these men, these young men were just able to kind of open up and share everything that's happened in their lives. And they talked way more than the girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just felt like a, there was a hunger for adults. And so, um, I'm sorry about that. That hunger, um, really extended into, um, what I was seeing for what was happening with these kids after school. And so I was still living in Cherry Hill with my parents at that time. And um, as I would drive um, home from East Camden Middle School every day, I was struck by how many kids were at the end of the school day around three o'clock, right? They're just kind of not doing anything wrong, but they're just hanging out. They're not, um, they're not delivering papers. They're not going to, um, played little league. They're not doing all the kinds of things that I would do after school. And I played soccer growing up. And so I told a couple of kids, I said, Oh, you know what? Um, why don't you meet me at the park after school and, and we'll, um, you know, play some soccer or whatever. And, and so the first week, I think we had like 10 kids and the second week we had 20 kids and the third week we had, you know, 40 kids. I mean, it just, it was growing like crazy. And, uh, I was, I'm 26, 27 years old and I'm on this field with all these kids and I have a whistle and a couple of soccer balls and some cones and I felt, you know, overmatched. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, Rutgers University Camden, uh, where I'm sitting right now, I um, just kind of looked uh, around their website, I guess, and, and found someone who looked like he knew something about working with the youth. 
this um, <laughs> professor by the name of Dan Hart. And I, and I reached out to him and I said, can I meet with you? I have this program. He said, yeah, sure. Come in. So I, I remember the afternoon I went in there, I went to his office and, and I, and I met Dan, I told him what was going on, just basically what I just told you. And I said, you know, I think I, I said, I think I need to do, um, some research because Dan was a, and is a professor of psychology and done a lot of research on youth. I said, I think I need to do some research because if I can do some research, I could, um, collect some, some data and, and maybe get some funding for this. And, and he said, yeah, 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 you probably could, whatever. He said, I, I could help you do that research. He said, but I'd really like to help you. Um, I'd really like to help you make this program work with the youth. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds great. He's like, I like soccer. I like kids. And, and, and so, yeah, sure enough, he did. I didn't really believe him, but he came out and, you know, he kept coming. So the next 20 years, we took this kind of after school soccer program and made into a, a youth development program that had things like community service because we knew that was really impactful on improving the life chances of youth and academic enrichment. And we took trips every summer. We'd go up to Vermont for a week um, with youth and um, had a, gave them a summer camp experience. And uh, something that, you know, probably cut off some, some, some of my life. I mean, it probably going to live a little bit less, uh, <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was great because we had to actually kind of, we had to drive all the way up to uh, Eastburg, Vermont. Uh, we rented out this, uh, this, uh, during the year, it's a ski academy. It's for kids that are um, really uh, highly competitive skiers, but we have it for a week and we'd have the, all the dorms in the kitchen and we lived right on the side of a mountain. It was great, um, but we had to drive up there and so we had to get CDL licenses and, and take the kids and, and we had to bring in our friends and family and everybody to come help us because we were taking 40 or 50 kids um, out of state for a week and yeah, we were we were overmatched. <laughs> and a lot of liability probably with that. Yeah, uh, yeah, well. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in those early years, talk a little bit about, you know, before you really dove into your research study that you did, your longitudinal mm-hmm. study, anecdotally, what were some light bulbs that were going off? What, what were some things that you were starting to witness with these kids around these initiatives that you thought, aha, there's yeah. something here working? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, a couple of things. I think, I think what we saw was this, um, this unequal opportunity. I mean, this, the opportunity structure that really affected their lives. So the opportunity for obviously, you know, I'm working in a school you see around education, um, but you also saw what's happening in the community. And that really started to kind of looking and asking this question, what is happening with the opportunities here that is, that is um, reducing the chances these kids will have healthy, constructive adulthood, right? Because like I told you at the beginning of the conversation, these kids were a, a lot like the kids I grew up with in Cherry Hill, um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what they wanted to do. I mean, they wanted everything that we wanted, and, and, and but they were, um, they were being sidetracked. And so a lot of it had to do with the opportunity. And one, one kind of thing that jumps to mind is, so I mentioned that um, we did community service. And one of the community service projects one of the first ones that we did, I, I have one of my siblings who has um, lupus. And so we um, were going to do a lupus walk, right, to raise money for lupus. And and, and it, uh, we told the kids the week before, we said, hey, we're going to do a lupus. We're going to do this lupus walk. Um, so, um, you know, fill this permission slip and uh, we'll see you next Saturday. And, and it, was a, it was a cold, rainy day and we had a school bus. 
And, <laughs> you know, we, we didn't think any kids were going to show up, but, but sure enough, we have filled up the school bus with kids that, that um, all these kids from East Camden that, that want to do this lupus walk. Um, and so they get on the bus and, you know, they're all excited because we're going to be go, traveling to another town, this big park, um, to do this lupus walk. And, you know, the, the kids are sitting there and they say, uh, hey, uh, where's lupus? Where is he? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but they just didn't, you know, they didn't know right, what they were yeah. signing up for. It. They're like, oh, it must be clear. I'm like, oh, yeah, we explained it's a disease, whatever. So we get there, we get to this, you know, beautiful park, which is, you know, really only... 15 minutes from where we, uh, the kids live, but they went bananas, right? I mean, there's the park. It was like kind of some, you know, it was a little bit woodsy, but basically just a, a park. I mean, just a big park, soccer fields and baseball fields, but they had like uh, a little kind of walking path and the kids were crazy and uh, for running around these woods. And, and um, that was the early days. And, and Dan said, you know, I think these kids, I think these kids need to go out, you know, to get out of the city more often. Um, and so that's when we started doing this Vermont trip. You know, so we, we, you know, it was kind of based out of that, just kind of seeing their reaction to just being in, um, in nature. And this was a very kind of, um, constricted amount of nature that they got being out in the, out in the woods and in, in this place called Washington Township, which is only 15 minutes away, just a big suburb. But, um, yeah, but again, that's the opportunity, right? So this, this opportunity kept, kept coming back to us. And another thing we noticed, um, just by, interacting and being um, in the space with these kids and their neighborhood was that, you know, we had a real hard time getting adults from the community to come out and, and volunteer to be coaches and help us. Um, we'd ask them. It's not that they didn't want to do it, um, but, you know, there was a lot of them worked non-traditional hours. Um, they weren't working nine to five jobs, which made it hard. Um, a lot of them, English wasn't their first language. Um, some of them, you know, they're really kind of um, dealing with other issues. And so, um, so that was one thing. But the other piece of it was, that really kind of started thinking about this research piece, um, was that the kids, there were, there were just a lot of kids, you know. Um, and so as we looked at the census data, um, we were really struck by the percentage of kids under the age of 18. In, in, in East Camden and other, in other neighborhoods in Camden and other census tracts in Camden. Um, and so we looked at that data and then, you know, come to find out that um, in a lot of these communities in Camden, um, one third of the population was under the age of 18. Mm. Um, and so that is probably very different than the community. I know it's very different than where I grew up in Cherry Hill, mm -hmm. where it's just 25%, right? 25% are under the age of 18. Um, so it seems like, okay, that's a one, one uh, child to, to three adults in Cherry Hill versus Camden, it's one to two. Wow. Um, and so when you put that together with a lot of the adults that we were encountering, didn't have, even though they wanted to, didn't have the resources to be able to kind of participate in, in, in improving the health and well-being for kids, um, you know, but had to do with the age structure. So the age structure, that one to two versus one to three makes a big difference, um, especially when you consider in a place like Cherry Hill, where I grew up, the adults were working nine to five jobs. They were well-educated. They were uh, at, uh, had high incomes. They had time. Um, and in Camden, right. So, so again, this affected that kind of that opportunity structure where the youth weren't really um, able to be served by their community. And so when you look at a place like Cherry Hill versus a place like Camden, in terms of when you look at youth, 
if you're living, if you're an adult living in a place like Camden, you're like, man, there's a lot of kids here. What are we going to do about this problem of all these kids? Mm-hmm. Uh, how are we going to manage this? So then you get things like curfews and midnight basketball and a lot of emphasis on, you know, kids who are truant from school and all these kinds of things. A place like Cherry Hill, which has a lot more resources to kind of help structure and improve the life chances for kids, we're able to kind of take these youth and kind of do things like, yeah, we're going to kind of create volunteering opportunities for them. And, and, and there's a lot of adults who can help out. And so it's something that just has, um, you know, as we kind of talk more in this conversation, it's something that's kind of recurred with us as we look at the age structure and what we, we, we've referred to it as, as child density, right? Camden is child dense. There's, mm-hmm. there's a high um, association between child density and poverty. Um, as well. And so it's something that, um, you know, there are obviously some communities like there's a community in, in New Jersey, Lakewood, that has um, a really big Orthodox Jewish community. Um, so there's a lot of kids there, but that's a different, that's a whole different dynamic than what we see in a place like Camden. But if you look at a place like Camden and Patterson and Trenton and Newark and Atlantic City, we have all these communities in New Jersey and you can look nationwide as well, that are child dense. These vulnerable communities also are more likely to be child dense. Mm-hmm. And that affects the, that affects the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunity that was provided to these youth in, in this program, let's fast forward just a few years. What were some of the impacts that you started to see? Yeah, well, what we really kind of saw was that the opportunity to, um, in a lot of ways, connect with our resources, right? So what we were doing, um, yeah, they came for soccer, but what they really got out of it was the opportunity to connect with adults who, um, to whom they mattered, right? We know that mattering, uh, mattering matters, right? Mattering matters to you to have someone who knows your name, is able to connect with you. That's what brought them back every week. The opportunity to interact with caring, consistent adults. We know that non-parental adults for adolescents, they matter a lot. Right. I mean, so you, you part of what happens in terms of your um, your growth and development, you you separate from your parents and you start to associate more with peers. Um, and you also associate hopefully with teachers and coaches and and other mentors. Right. And well, what we kind of know from social influence theory, you know what the people around, you know. And so if you're spending a lot of time around peers, mm-hmm. people that your age, that can be fun, right? JR, they can be fun, sure. right? They, 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 they can show you new, the new dance step or kind of tell you about kind of what they know about diet or sexual health or anything. Um, but they don't know as much as adults. Mm-hmm. And adults know a lot about kind of um, financial aid forms and kind of why, you know, um, you know, yeah, things about sexual health and things about kind of your your other health just and, and ways to kind of um, improve life chances. I mean, that's what adults know. And so when kids are spending a lot of time in the company of other kids, like they do in places that are child dense, um, then we can start to expect um, or sometimes we see um, these kind of outcomes that 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 are um, not associated with healthy and constructive adulthood. Mm-hmm. And so some of the youth who went through the program early on. Do you keep mm. in contact with any of them? Do you know where they they are now? Yeah, it's funny. Um, we do. Uh, we, we, we some, some we see on a pretty regular basis. For example, there's um, one uh, individual by the name of Fabian who we've known since he was uh, eight years old. Um, and we were able to get him a job at, at 
Rutgers Camden in, in facilities. And so I actually happen to see him almost every day when I look at my office, he works here. Wow. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of funny. And, and, uh, and we, there's others, we, we, there's other youth that, that we know who, um, um, because we work with hundreds of youth. So we just, you know, we, we know them and now we know their kids. Um, and like I said, we did this for 20 years. So we, um, yeah, we know a lot of youth and it's, it, and we, we get notes from them. I mean, um, you know, just kind of checking in with us, seeing how they're doing. And I think a lot of it is still, um, what we see is, this, is, this, is um, the value we can add is providing opportunities for them and then helping them to um, increase opportunities. So we, we do encounter a lot, of, uh, a lot of the youth. Yeah. Have any of them returned to the program as coaches or mentors? You know what? That was kind of our hope. I mean, so we started doing this. Um, I started doing this when I was in my 20s. I, I wasn't. Uh, I didn't have any kids. I wasn't married yet. So I had a lot of time on my hands and Dan's kids were a little bit older. And so we were able to, um, I was able to give up a lot of time and Dan was able to give up a lot of time. Um, and as I aged and my kids who kind of grew up in the program, I mean, so I've, I've right now I've an 18 year old and a 14 year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they were my 18 year old, his, in his first three months of life. He was in Vermont with us. I have a picture of him in Vermont surrounded by all these kids in the star program. Um, and, um, so they got to see me kind of as a, as a, as a, as a husband, as a dad, you know, as a brother, cause my brothers would come, but, but anyway, um, the, the point of it is that as my kids got older and, and I had to, I was leaving on, on weekends to go spend time with other people's kids um, as they started to get into their sports. And like, uh, especially my 14 year old, he was playing soccer. It got really hard to leave my house and my kids. Uh, and, and so that's kind of when we stopped doing it. And our hope was always that kids that had run, been part of the program as participants would be able to come back and, and kind of run the program. And, and we tried, but had didn't really ever take off. And so we had to just kind of shut it down. So we still keep in contact with the kids, but uh, after 20 years, we did, we did basically kind of shut it down. Um, we still, you know, still have a name for it. We still, you know, have some funding for it. But we don't really run it anymore. Yeah. Well, how did that work connected with the work of your research help inform your current role as a grant maker? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So I think it's come um, full circle. I mean, it's so, so, you know, 25 years ago, when we started doing this work around improving the um, life chances for, for youth. Um, we really saw the importance of um, and the opportunity to connect kids with meaningful adults to connect them with um, meaningful opportunities in their community and give them the opportunity to improve health and well-being in their community. So back in those days, we did things like, obviously I told you about the lupus walk. We also did things like um, Thanksgiving turkey baskets that kids would give away, which was, and so they'd give out turkey baskets in their community. Um, we were able to hire kids to do this problem, uh, this, this program where they, um, uh, enrolled families in uh, the state children's health insurance program. Probably remember um, there was, it was under enrolled in a lot of vulnerable communities. So if we trained kids and were able to pay them um, for their summer employment to go door to door and enroll families in the program. So they, they actually we bought these copiers and they were able to go. And a lot of it had to do with the families weren't able to kind of get their documents together, but the kids were trained and we had some AmeriCorps workers that worked with their teams. We hired kids. And anyway, so fast forward to, to uh, 20, 
16, um, you know, I was talking to Dan um, and I was like, oh, damn, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, every every year we do annual funding initiatives. I was like, oh, I'm thinking about what we should do for our next funding initiative. And we started talking about the STAR program. We said, like, oh, it would be great if you could kind of do that statewide. Mm-hmm. And and as we thought about it, it made a lot of sense. Right? If we could take um, youth and a lot do a, a lot of what we did with the Candid STAR program, um, when we were able to hire them, we put them with adult coaches who basically kind of were able to kind of help them. Um, but we built a lot of other pieces into it. Like, so the piece that we kind of took from the research, we're thinking about what do kids need to do to develop initiative? Um, and one thing they have to kind of be doing is, is, is thinking about um, doing something meaningful to their, with their community. Um, so again, going back to this opportunity idea, kids in places like um, Camden don't always get the opportunity to actually contribute to the health and well-being in their communities. And so we want to give them that opportunity. We also want to give them an opportunity to kind of partner with the community so where they are coming in and bringing their time, talent, and energy to a community problem and working with the community to develop a solution and implement that solution um, and, and do that. So that has to happen, occur over the arc of time. Um, so we need to, can't happen in a week, can't happen in a couple of days. You need to really kind of do over, you know, preferably like a nine month period for, the, for it to kind of have any impact. And the last thing at the, at the, at the back end, it has to result in some sort of product or performance. Um, and so what we funded, um, um, like we being New Jersey Health Initiatives, which is the statewide grant making program of the Robert Johnson Foundation, is the Next Generation Community Leaders Program. And what we um, offered to communities, we offered to 10 communities across the state um, grants of $200,000. And what they could do with those grant dollars were to, uh, to create teams of youth, high school age youth, but they don't have to be in school, they're out of school youth as well because they're important. Um, and funded them to um, create these teams that do just that. Uh, what I described is work with youth to look at their communities, ask questions about what's happened in their community, whether it be around something around um, healthy aging and older adults, or around something around summer feeding, which is another undersubscribed under program through the USDA, um, because as you might know, for a lot of kids in vulnerable communities, hungry um, summer is the hungriest time of the year because they're not in school. And so there's a program, but it's undersubscribed, so kids can enroll families in that um, and increase feeding. Um, and so that's what these teams are doing. So we have teams all across the state, 10 teams across the state, from as far north as Patterson to as far south as Atlantic City. Uh, and Bridgeton, and what they're doing is working with these teams of 10 to 15 high school age youth, and they are developing these projects that they're going to be implementing in July. And then there'll be another round with another 10 to 15 kids um, for 2018. Um, but at the end of this, we'll have you know between 200 and 300 kids um, who are have experience in contributing to the health and well-being in their community, um, but also have experience in developing the tools they're going to need to be the next generation of leaders, right? Because these communities and these these vulnerable communities need to um, think about who's going to be the people that are going to be on their school board and who are going to be on their city council and who's going to be running the those little leagues and those youth leagues that kind of contribute to health and well-being in their communities. And, And that's the other kinds of skills that these youth are getting right now in this program is 
is learning to communicate, learning to work in teams, learning to understand about population health and how health is addressed in their community and having real world experience in doing that. And so, um, and the other piece I should, um, should emphasize about the next generation community leaders program is that the youth are compensated for all of their time all the time that they contribute into not just their summer employment piece that they do in July, but all that they do in terms of developing their projects and working together and coming together as a team, um, they're compensated for it. And we thought that was really important to really make it clear to them that um, we really value what they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, value them because they have a perspective that, right, we, we can't as adults presume to know what they're thinking or kind of what they're, so we learn from them, but also we're also kind of have to be very um, aware that, look, these are also in 10 years and five years for some of these youth, they're going to be in the position to contribute to health and well-being. Yeah. So that's, we have to start, you know, really value that and invest in them um, as, as the next generation of leaders. Yeah, that's fantastic. So for yeah. the new communities or for the 10 or new, uh, sorry, for the new youth coming on this summer, uh, are those 10 new communities or same communities, but. Oh, great, yeah. Youth? Great question. Yeah. So same community, new youth. Um, and and the, and the the first cohort will help their um, will help with the new youth coming in, but the new youth get to create their own project, and so there'll be different projects, same coaches, and the first um, cohort will contribute to helping a little bit in terms of um, helping them kind of figure out how to do this. But it's, it's exciting. So we're actually bringing them to the Rutgers Camden campus um, from all across the state, June 9th and 10th. Um, and they're going to have a, a retreat where they're going to get some some workshops and, you know, some fun stuff built in. But um, I should also mention that the person that is a technical assistance provider for this grant is um, Dan Hart and his, uh, a colleague of ours, Sue Altman. Um, and they are been working diligently going across the state. Um, really developing handbook and doing all this training to help these um, teams come together and really understand, kind of um, meet the goals and demands of this project. Perfect. Yeah. And you have a new book that you're working on right now with Dan, who helped you co-found Star. Tell us what we should expect from that book. Yeah. So I think in some ways it's a... um, it's a primer, but it's also a, a, a memoir, I think, um, that really kind of captures some of what I discussed in this conversation about kind of um, what we've learned. I mean, I think we've, we've um, felt privileged to um, be in the company and, and learn so much and grow so much from our work in Camden, um, but then kind of um, what we learned about what it takes to um, develop good groups and the value of good groups and how they can contribute to um, to healthier and more vibrant communities um, because we do think that there's an opportunity for um, other adults. I think other adults want to um, engage with youth and we want them not necessarily to have to make all the mistakes that we made. Right? I mean, they, there's, there, there are some best practices and ours are, are really kind of evidence-based. Um, but yeah, we made some mistakes and so we learned from those and we try to capture those in this, um, in this primer, but also um, thinking about how to really inspire and encourage others to, to do this kind of work because for us, it, it was um, probably one of the most 
um, other than being a parent, one of the most gratifying things that I've done is, is being a part of the lives of these youth. And that happens through good groups and creating good groups and finding ways to connect youth, to opportunity, engage them civically, engage them with their communities. And yeah, so that's really what the book is really kind of um, focused on. Nice. So it's a little bit of storytelling and also a little bit of practical application. Yeah, yeah, really trying to give some really useful tips to how to um, do it, but also hopefully share some stories of kind of what we learned along the way. Yeah, and if people are interested in maybe replicating the STAR program or doing something similar, is there an easy way for them to connect to find information on that? Yeah, you know what, we... um they can contact me, uh, and because we are one of the things that we're trying to do through the Next Generation Community Leaders Program is we've developed some products of that, and one of those pieces is a handbook um, that really captures um, some of what we've learned, um, and as, and we're really trying to convey to these different um, our our grantee organizations that are working with the youth, um, and we'll also be developing a website um, which is is be, be, being developed right now, but. That's going to capture a lot of that, and I think we, what we hope to do is really be able to share is, is this is kind of, yeah, here's how, here's how you go about it, um, and here's how you kind of um, find these ways to, to work with youth. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more about all of the work of the New Jersey Health Initiatives, they can visit you online at nghi.org, right? Right, nghi, um, right, um, yep, .org, yep. Perfect. Well, Bob Atkins, thank you so much for joining us today on the Compact Nation podcast. Uh, Chair, thanks for the invitation. I, I hope um, hope you found it valuable. I enjoy talking about this stuff. We did. Thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome back, everybody. Um, thanks, Jr. for that interview. So he, when I was listening to that, I was struck by how many different things Bob has done. And he founded Camden Star entirely as a volunteer. Is that right? That's so I, I will um, just interject that I've known Bob, um, I don't know how long now, 10 years or so from when we worked together at Rutgers Camden. And my understanding is, yeah, that Bob was always in that role in a voluntary capacity kind of, again, beginning when he was a school nurse, did it on the side, was able to find funding and, you know, bring in partners, as he described, Dan Hart, who's a a distinguished psychologist at Rutgers Camden, uh, participated. So yeah, it was um, a kind of a very heavy lift that he pulled off with the help of lots of folks, but just by dedicating an enormous amount of time and energy along with Dan to that program. I was really struck by a couple of things, and one I'll say is just, it's clear he has that researcher's mindset and curiosity, and I think that um, his interview really was another good example to me of why that curiosity is so important when you're trying to solve social problems. Um, For instance, just looking at, you know, the way he approached the um, issue of not having enough parent volunteers. I think a lot of people would look at that, would make a lot of assumptions about those adults, about their home lives, about a lot of things. Um, he looked at it as a question, as an open question. And the what he found in just the ratio of kids to adults and the impact that has just 
you know, it's math that these people don't have as much time as in other neighborhoods. I found that fascinating and counter to so many assumptions about um, low-income communities. And that that just spoke to me to why it's so important to go into things with a, with a curiosity and setting aside your assumptions and really being willing to look at what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. I also appreciated how he poured his entire life into this program, his research, but his care for these kids and their lives. He talked about uh, his kids grew up with some of these kids. As, he, as you know, he became a father and he took them on outings and he took his kids with them. I thought there was something really special about that. And he also keeps in contact with some of the kids who went through the program. He had mentioned one of the individuals now works at Rutgers Camden and he gets to see him on a regular basis. And I don't think that always happens when we lead youth initiatives. We don't always get to see where those individuals are 20, 25 years down the road. So I think there's something really special about Bob and how how much time and energy he poured into this program to make it work and the care that he put into it, I think is kind of hard to find and something I wish we could see more of. A couple thoughts that relate, uh, I think, to both of those observations that you made. One is that Bob uh, was an undergraduate double major in political science and American civilization. And I think, you know, when Emily describes kind of approaching the question from uh, from a position of curiosity and an openness to thinking about what might be the factors that are driving the surface phenomena we see, I think it is one of the things about a liberal arts education that it builds that kind of question asking and, you know, the fact that his instinct was to go find a, a scholar at Rutgers Camden, Dan mm-hmm. Hart, to sit down and start thinking about what can I learn to understand this context better. I just, I think that's, and of course, it's distinctive about Bob, but I think it is also something that a certain kind of education really promotes and that I, I think can be really important. Another point about this in terms of the relationship building, you know, and I don't know if this was clear from the interview, but uh, you know, Bob is a person of color and he is a person who had tremendous educational opportunities as he described. And I think, you know, it really does speak to the importance of our diversifying the kinds of roles and professions, uh, you know, having a school nurse in an overwhelmingly, uh, you know, a community that is overwhelmingly students of color, uh, a school nurse who's very well educated and prepared and a person of color who grew up in very different circumstances, but is still in a position, I think, to establish links uh, that are really important for young people that help build relationships. And again, obviously, people of all uh, backgrounds can do this kind of work, but if we don't ensure that our teachers and our nurses and others who are connecting directly with young people are diverse, we're, we're limiting our opportunities for making that happen. Yeah, and I thought that, um, you know, that curiosity and openness really extended to one of the things I appreciated the most, and it's um, something that I've been thinking about here more is, you know, he didn't see these kids as a problem to be managed. And he kind of described how that sometimes all a community has the bandwidth to do is just manage the problems. It's clear he sees them as an asset and an opportunity. And again, that's something we talk about a lot, but I think it's harder to do, especially when it comes to kids. But it's clear he's taking that mindset and applying it to his job now and the kinds of programs they're doing, empowering youth again, not as um, youth are the 
the problem that you're getting a grant to solve, but that youth are the ones being empowered to solve the problems. And I, I really appreciated that. And it was clear that's a core philosophy. I guess another uh, dimension of this that I just find really interesting is the, you know, the role that a foundation can play. So Robert Wood Johnson overall is focused on these kind of upstream factors uh, that affect, uh, they they use the language now of culture of health, trying to create broader Mm -hmm. cultures in which health can happen. And the idea of saying, if we're interested in health, we need to be thinking about cultivating young people who will be effective leaders to build community-based organizations and lead them and lead city governments in effective ways. I think it's it's really encouraging to see that kind of long view from foundations. I think it's the thing that foundations have the flexibility to do that most entities don't. Elected officials think about the next year or two because they have an election ahead of them. Folks who are driven by annual uh, enrollment concerns or other kinds of kind of revenue generation concerns can't always take a long view. And I think foundations can uh, put pressure on everybody by providing resources to think ahead in, in 10, 20, 30 year time horizons. And, you know, I just think that that example of thinking about how are the 14 year olds that we can engage with right now going to be the people who down the road are the mayor and the city council in, you know, small, medium sized cities around the country, uh, or in this case in New Jersey. So I just thought that was an interesting thing to learn about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's an, it's the more expansive view of what it means to work in health that I think you're seeing in the way some foundations approach things, the way some schools approach things. Um, because again, you just can't solve these problems in isolation. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that they have the applicants walk through the process of showing us as a funder how you've already come together as a community who's at the table, uh, what roles are they going to play. I like the framework that they developed, which you can find on their website. It's a mm-hmm. great example of what needs to be in place before you approach a major funder to support this work to continue to grow these healthy initiatives in your community. So I appreciate the framework that they have available for that. One other thing that just stood out to me from the interview, it was kind of a reminder for me. So as I said, I worked in Camden um, and a lot of the work we did when I was at Rutgers Camden was uh, in the context of school partnerships. And so I just spent a fair amount of time in public schools in Camden, New Jersey. And, you know, people may know, but by almost any measure, Camden for decades has been among the most challenged cities in the country and its school performance has been extremely low. Students uh, not achieving the levels of learning people would want for all kinds of reasons that we've been talking about. And I didn't have obviously the level of intensity of engagement with the school and the students that Bob did as a school nurse, but I was there frequently and, you know, sometimes meeting with parents, sometimes meeting with teachers, uh, sometimes having side conversations with kids because I'm at events. And I would just really encourage people not only to think about the work that can be done in school partnerships, although that's really important, but also just to recognize the, the learning opportunities for us as professionals in the settings of schools and certainly in the settings of schools that are not like ones we ourselves attended, whatever those happen to be like. You know, I think I've seen people who have 
who have no experience in well-resourced schools going into those places and being stunned by what they see and realizing what educational achievement gaps are grounded in. And the same is true in reverse. And so for us, you know, we did a lot of work bringing our college students into schools in Camden. Mm -hmm. Some of them came out of those schools and they knew exactly what it was about and they were there because they wanted to see change. For others, it was a shocking experience. Uh, but also there's so much to be learned from talking to kids and parents and teachers because they have a deep understanding of the situations they're in. Right. Interesting. Well, thanks, JR, for doing that interview. Um, should we talk about a little pop culture today? Yes. Who wants to go first? Well... I, I could go, I guess. <laughs> so we, we told our listeners last time we're now recording this through Zoom so we see each other. So I felt like all eyes were on me all of a sudden. So I'll just jump right in. Um, mine is always, like always, tangentially related to community engagement because sometimes I just like to talk about things I'm reading or watching. Um, I do want to kind of push one of my friend's books, uh, which was turned into a movie recently. So my friend Becky Albertalli came out with a movie, or came out with a book, sorry, a couple years ago called Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. It's a YA book um, about a gay high school student who um, meets someone online through email who also is gay and goes to a school and they're trying to figure out who the other is and then they meet each other in the end. So spoiler. Um, anyhow, that was recently turned into a movie called Love, Simon, that was released in March. And it's a movie that, if you've not seen it yet, I encourage you, if it's still uh, at the theaters in your community, to go see it. Or you can probably get it on Netflix. But um, Becky is heterosexual. And oftentimes, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to say this, sometimes straight folks just don't get it right when you write about mm -hmm. gay people or gay relationships. And there are so many books that I've read. There are so many movies I've seen that deal with gay relationships. But Becky got it right. And the reason why she got this right is because she did her research. She uh, used to be a school counselor. She worked with GL LGBTQ kids. Um, she consulted those kids that she once knew as she was writing this book. And they helped inform, essentially, right, her research to write this book. And this is one of the best gay love stories I have ever seen representing high school students who are in love. And I really think um, there's something special with that book and that movie that is shining a light on um, and giving hope for kids who are LGBTQ to see that there are opportunities for me to find someone to fall in love. And it can be a longstanding love and a longstanding relationship. So I just want to... Uh, give some finger snaps for my friend Becky for writing that book, for getting it right, uh, for uh, Fox turning it into a movie, um, and then providing this this uh, piece that's out there for youth to see. And it does connect in some ways, right? Because when we're doing community partnerships and doing community-based <laughs> research, right, we need to do our homework and do an asset-based approach. And so it's just, you know, this is more on commercial young adult fiction, but uh, there are correlations. Well, if our theme is doing your research, I've got one too. This is this is my way in for talking about, um, and it, it, it is really, it, you know, just approach, approaching the word world with curiosity and being willing to really um, do the hard work to learn what you need to learn about 
the thing you're into. So I'll just jump into the mine is, um, I'm in, I like true crime. That's a genre I'm interested in. And this past week in the true crime world was a pretty big one in that the Golden State Killer, one of the most prolific serial killers in California, uh, who committed most of his crimes 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. Uh, yeah, I think starting 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, like around the time I was born. So I clearly <laughs> think I'm 20 years old. Uh, <laughs> sounds about right. <laughs> well, you do have that shrine in your office. Right? <laughs> Stop. Um, no, so Michelle McNamara, uh, who was married to Patton Oswalt, the comedian, she actually died tragically, I think, two or three years ago and hadn't finished the book, but she had been meticulously researching and trying to find this killer. And last week he was found. Um, and he is, and I'm reading the book right now. So I'm in the middle of it. They found the actual person. He is a former police officer who'd been living right in the middle of where he committed many of his crimes still. Um, there's still a lot to learn. He was tracked down through the, the ancestry DNC, DNA database, um, which is fascinating and not something I've seen happen in crime. So it's, it's a lot of, uh, first of all, her book is beautiful and meticulous. Um, she wasn't able to finish it, but a couple of researchers and writers took her notes and finished it um, after her death. It's uh, an incredible book, but it's clear how how much work she did in researching this in addition to some of the other, um, you know, long-term detectives and investigators who had been working on this and finally uh, will hopefully get get justice for that. So, yeah, if you're into something, research the heck out of it. Maybe something will come out that one day, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I will I will offer something, but just in uh, I was fascinated by that story as well, and I read a bunch in particular about the use of DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. And as I mean, I think so. I can't remember how many. They essentially, based on one of the kits made at the you know taken from one of the scenes. I'm not sure what the particular source was, but DNA evidence they had of who the person was. Yeah, from across several. Yeah, so they were able to identify based on some of these ancestry DNA sites, a person who would have been his like great, great, great grandfather. Yeah, I think it was great, great, great. Yeah. Yeah. And then build out the family tree. So they know it's somebody descended and then they go to the kinds of evidence that mm -hmm. Michelle McNamara had helped develop to narrow down within that who it likely was. Uh, just, I mean, a pretty amazing. And, and again, raises all kinds of questions about the sorts of information that are floating around about all of us that we you know, voluntarily in this right. case put out there. But um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, that was a fascinating story from a number yeah, of Yeah, so shout, shout out posthumously to Michelle McNamara, but also to Paul Holes, the investigator. She interviewed for the book, who was the one who um, came up with the idea of using ancestry DNA and in this way, which I, to my knowledge has not happened in a case like this. That's amazing. It makes it makes me think like how many more cases can be solved now because this has been opened, right? Well, what how many court cases are gonna right? right? Is this yeah. okay? Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of questions about it as well. True. So my not so pop culture corner <laughs> uh, is a podcast, uh, and it's called. Um, I suddenly lost the name of it. It's called Market Urbanism. There we go. Sorry about that. My brain just left me. And so the reason I'm interested, it's a podcast about making cities better, more thriving, successful places 
from a kind of free market economics perspective. And I find a number of things really interesting about it. Um, one is they're just smart people. They're connected with um, a center at George Mason University focused on kind of applying free market thinking to all sorts of problems that we face. Uh, and so it's interesting, good topics, whatever. But I'm, I'm interested in it in part because, you know, we talk a lot in our work about bringing people together uh, across ideological differences to try to focus on solving shared problems, et cetera. And I think a lot of times when people picture that, they kind of have a, um, like the worst TV, like CNN kind of version of people just screaming at each other across yeah. ideological differences, whatever. And this is a podcast that's interesting to me because a lot of the issues it's taking on are of great interest to people who think of themselves as liberals or progressives, right? Affordable housing being the central concern. And the view of the folks who do this podcast is that if you want to make housing affordable in cities, the primary way you need to do that is by increasing the supply of housing. <laughs> and that's just basic economics. We all can see that. And the way you do that primarily is by reducing regulation on the development of housing. And that's not a crazy standpoint to have it. Again, it fits with basic economic principles. And so, it, but it changes the lens. If you're an affordable housing advocate, this is less about how do we get, say, government policy to actively create more affordable housing. And you start thinking about how do we change government policies that discourage the development of affordable housing right now. And for those of us who live like in places like Boston, where housing prices are skyrocketing and it's extremely difficult to get new housing built, even though there are many, many people who need places to live, uh, it's a pretty interesting thing to listen to. And certainly for me, it challenges some of the assumptions I walk into policy questions with um, in an intelligent, thoughtful, nobody screaming at each other kind of way. And uh, I just think we need more stuff like that. So market urbanism, I encourage you to take a listen. Yeah, that's right. I, I will, because I have a lot of questions about that. I mean, afford there's affordable housing and then there's affordable, you know, standing housing that meets any kind of quality standard. Because, yeah, you can build all kinds of housing and eventually some slumlord will make it affordable enough for some people. But will it be anything that your average person would actually want to live in? Like, what are we talking about being made available as affordable for people at the very bottom of that scale? I'm, I'm just going to give one example because I think that's yeah. a great point. So they're, they're clear that, you know, health and safety requirements are a good idea and they think those are completely compatible with more. But one really good example is this thing called um, micro apartments or micro units. Mm -hmm. And I saw some of these in Minneapolis, some new development with these very small apartments. So they're like 300 square feet, sort of like a dorm room. It's intended for young people young people recently out of college who just need a place to live and they don't need a ton of space. They want to be in the city so they can don't have to own a car and can get to work easily. And they're completely like nice looking, the places that have done them and clean and safe, but they're very, very small. And in most cities, you're not allowed to develop a unit that small. And mm -hmm. most developers aren't interested in that. Most neighborhoods, they worry about density. You know, there are all these parking requirements attached. These are people who are doing this because don't they don't want, want to yeah. own a car. And then the developer is forced to set aside space that could be used for better things to become parking. And so it's an interesting kind of battle where it's not about health or safety. It's often about preserving the interests of those who, for some reason or another, have a stake in uh, keeping property values high or whatever it might be, as opposed to mm -hmm. actually creating housing for people who need it most. So, so again, a lot of these things, there are 
like reasonable people can reasonably disagree. Historic preservation is another kind of question where you can have legitimately different viewpoints about it, but it's worth saying out loud that if you are a, a sort of doctrinaire preservationist, you are probably reducing the chance there will be affordable housing in your city. And, you know, I'm somebody who has kind of preservationist instincts, but also care a lot about affordable housing. So it's making me think about a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, makes my brain hurt, but probably that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's an important conversation that's happened in a few neighborhoods here in Des Moines. Um, and again, it's, it's easy to understand both sides and, but you have to maybe prioritize the people here right now who have to live somewhere. Um, interesting. I'll take a listen to that. That's definitely an interest, an issue I'm very interested in. Cool. All right. Should we wrap it up for today? Sure. Okay. So um, enjoy the next, this, this episode, the next two episodes um, will not have me and Andrew as a part of them. So enjoy learning more about global service learning and uh, from JR. And then uh, we'll be back with more exciting episodes um, a little bit later in the summer and always looking for your ideas for topics, especially as we go into planning for season three. So you can email us at podcast at compact.org. You can use hashtag compact nation pod on social media. Had a couple of those this week, people interested in coming on or, or uh, throwing other guests or topic ideas our way. So we're always excited for that and getting ready to think more about the next season. So send that our way and thanks for listening. Thanks everyone. Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jamison, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.